As we come to that portion in our service where we will hear from God's word, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 will be our sermon text this morning. Please rise to honor the reading of God's most holy word. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God written for you and for me today. Let us attend to its reading. Starting in verse 17, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come to destroy, I've come not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth passes away, one jot nor one tittle shall be, shall pass from this law till all be fulfilled. Whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do them and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. The law is a scary word for modern man. By nature, it is restrictive, and it is against that natural desire that all men have, especially modern men have, for absolute liberty and freedom, the ability to do all that which we desire. If you look around in our culture today, it is not law that our culture preaches. It is freedom from law. An ability to go about whatever I feel is right and go on doing so. And so we look back even to the Reformation and we see that it has not always been like this But in the Reformation, the Reformers saw that law was being used in a very different way. The Reformers, like Luther and Calvin and so many others, saw that in that culture that the Roman church had used the law and had developed it to such a nth degree that they were being oppressive to the souls and the hearts of the people there. Luther recalls in this famous account that he gives as he goes to Rome and he sees those great steps that the Roman Catholic Church had claimed were the ones in the palace that Pilate was in, that Christ ascended before he was condemned. And he saw many sinners praying for the, for the forgiveness of their sins as they ascended each step on their knees and continued to pray so much so that their knees would bleed before they got to the top. Luther, Calvin, and others rightly saw a Pharisaic notion that had crept its way into the church and preached that God alone is Lord of the conscience and that there is indeed true freedom, true liberty that comes with being a Christian found to be in Christ. Yet today, when we look back on the Reformation, today when so many modern churches look back, they look at that freedom and they say, well, then we need nothing to do with this law. 
This law has nothing to do with us. That was in the old covenant. That was in the old times. That's how God dealt with his people then. Now we have freedom in Christ. Yet Luther and Calvin would be aghast to see what they had done used in such a fashion. They were not preaching that we should do away with this law. Indeed, if we come back to our passage this morning as we look at Matthew 5, what is it that Christ is doing here? This is the beginning of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Christ is ascending a mountain, and the Jews would have seen this much like another man ascended a mountain and came down with a law. That was Moses, and now they see another lawgiver the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he is about to proclaim that sermon that we all know so well, he gives this preface as if to say, you're going to hear me say, it has been said, but I tell you, but let me warn you against what you might hear me saying. And he says this, that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The Lord Jesus Christ has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so in our passage this morning, as we dive into this text, we will see that firstly, very clearly, as Jesus Christ gives this law, he knows that the law is not from men, but that it is from God. Secondly, we will see that the law is not given merely to be a restriction upon us, but that it is actually for our good. The law is good. It is for the good of those who follow it, and therefore it can indeed be a delight for the people of God. And lastly, we will see that that mistake that was made by the Pharisees, that same mistake made by the Roman Catholic Church, is that they had mistaken what the law was there for, that the law is a faith. And that man is to reach out in faith to the one who keeps this law perfectly. Knowing that we do not keep it perfectly. And yet, by faith, as the Spirit works within us, as the Spirit sanctifies us, we can indeed begin more and more to keep that law. To day in and day out be made more in conformity to the image of the one who kept it perfectly on our behalf. So let us dive in this morning as we consider these aspects, these three aspects of the law that Christ is speaking to. Firstly, the law is of God. Contrary to the way that modern man thinks, the world did not start as primitive and animalistic cavemen came out of their caves and slowly evolved into societies even though this is what the modern man and his science would have us believe. Their science has taught them to view the law as a mere invention, as something that these animals coming out of the cave to become human developed so that way they could have orderly societies. In other words, the law is little more than a hammer or a saw, a tool that man has developed so that way he can have his society. Contrary to this view, The scriptures tell a very different story. They teach that the law is from God. 
that mankind in the garden was not running around in chaos, free from any kind of law, but that as soon as Adam and Eve were created and put into the garden, there was a law from God. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth and take dominion of it. God says, as soon as he breathes life into the dust and calls that man Adam. Later he would say, do not take from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was not a moment in time in which man did not have a law. But contrary to the way modern man might view this law, Adam viewed that law with joy. He walked with God. This law was for his good, and for at least a time he recognized that. Until the tempter, the old deceiver, the devil, came in and tempted him to distrust that law. More than this, we know the law is from God because it is a reflection of God's holy character. God is love, says the evangelist John. And Christ said that the law and prophets all hung on this, that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. When God ordered a law for his people, he was commanding nothing less than for them to be holy as he is holy. He commanded love because he is love, the eternal trinity, who forever was loving each person of the trinity, loving its, the other with a perfect and unbroken love. He did not give a separate law for his people that was nothing like himself. He did not say, do as I say, but not as I do. He said, be holy as I am holy. And he called his people to love as he is love. He desired a loving people for he is love itself, an honest people for he is truth itself, and a life-giving people for he is life itself. He was calling his people to himself. And so... We learn, even as we turn to the Old Testament scriptures and we look at Psalm 1, what do we see? Those saints of old saying of God's law. Psalm 1 speaks of the blessed man, a man who delights in the law of God. He sees not only bare words on a page as he reads those precepts, but he sees the lawgiver who gave those precepts. He takes delight in the precepts because he knows the one who gave them. And he knows that that one is the source of all justice and goodness. Just as we may learn much of famous men from reading their works, just as we may learn much of Lewis or Tolkien from reading the books that they have written, so too the one who loves God would want to learn as much as he could about him by reading that which the Lord has given, by reading his laws, by reading his word. And God in his grace gave us so much to read, did he not, in his scriptures. If such is the nature of the law, if it is a reflection of who God is, if in it we learn about who God is, and if God gave it to his people because he desired them to be holy, as he is holy, then surely when Christ ascends the mountain to give this sermon, he is not here to throw all that aside. 
He is not here to say, yes, I know that the blessed man delights in the law, but no, we don't need it anymore. Christ came to fulfill the law and to show us the goodness of it because he was coming to show us the goodness and love of the creator God himself. Before he goes into this, he has to give this preface because as he is speaking, the Pharisees would love to read all of what Christ says in the following parts of the sermon when he says, you have heard it said, but I say, and they would say, ah, you're saying you don't care for the law anymore. And he says, no, I do. I have not come to abolish that law. He even gives a further emphasis and a warning when he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In verse 19, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does, not, does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Hearing that would be a shock to the ears of many in the modern church who would think, what, Christ came so we can live under grace and not the law. Yes, but this is still the same Christ, the same God who gave that law to Moses all of those years ago. Dabney, in his comment on this, I think, puts it very well. He said, For the Decalogue is as much Christ's law as the Sermon on the Mount. He was the authoritative agent for giving both. How often do we miss how connected the Old and New Testaments are? That the same God that gave the law at Mount Sinai, that the same God who was calling Joshua into Canaan, that the same God who was speaking to David, when he promised to establish his throne forever, that same God was the one ascending the mountain in Matthew 5 to give the Sermon on the Mount. It was the same one. And so Christ, far from abolishing that law, was cutting through to show just how deep that law goes, and more importantly, how deep our sin as Christ says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, he unpacks the heart of the matter. For he who desires sin is in sin. The man who desires to hate his brother is the one who's actually a murderer, Christ says. The law actually goes deeper. The law is actually worse than you thought even though the Pharisees tell you all of these shallow ways that you can keep it in one way, externally. Christ says no. The law is a matter of the heart. Secondly, as Christ is explaining the law, we must know that Christ understands and that all the Old Testament saints that wrote those blessed scriptures of the Old Testament for us they understood as well that the law is not for our ill, but it's for our good. The law is for our good. The modern man, this grates his ears. He hates to hear this. The ancient laws, he says, have they not been done away with? His ears are, and eyes are fixated on liberty, 
We want freedom, he says. I want to be left alone that I can do whatever it is that my heart desires. The modern man speaks of liberty, yes, and so do the scriptures. But the liberty that the scriptures speak of is not the same liberty as the modern man and his modern libertarianism would think. In fact, such an idea of liberty that the modern man loves is paramount to what Calvin might call libertinism or what the Apostle Paul might call slavery. That liberty, the liberty of anarchy, the liberty where there is no law actually ends up being far more restrictive, far more crushing than the law of God. Even within the modern church, many would ascend pulpits to focus on only one use of the law, that it shows us our wickedness, that it shows us our inability to keep it. And indeed, that is a very important facet of the law. How many times do we read the Ten Commandments here in church or read of other places in the scriptures where the law is further expounded for us and we look at our own heart and say, I have not kept this. Indeed, I hardly keep this at all. How wicked am I? That is a very important use of the law. Yet, the reformers saw not one use of the law, but three. The law is not there merely to show your inability. It shows you that, then it drives you to Christ, and then what? It leaves you there to spend your life in anarchy? No. It shows the path that Christ would have us walk in humble gratitude to the Lord who has saved us. This is nothing new. We just read in Exodus 20 that this is how God has been operating with the law since the very beginning. He does not say, thou shalt have no other gods before me without saying something first. He says, I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He said, you were slaves. I've already brought you out. Now, do not act like slaves. Act like those who are saved by the Lord. Follow his law, which is actually freedom. What you were doing before when you had no law, that was slavery. It's backwards to the modern ear. The modern ear flips the two. It looks as the law as slavery, and it looks at anarchy as freedom. And yet, for the man in whom the Spirit works as we read the Scriptures, we know the opposite to be the case. And so, with keeping God's law, we find freedom. We find that keeping it came with blessing. The issue here we see is that Christ is speaking to a Jewish people who had been taken in by lies coming from the Pharisaical sect. The Pharisees indeed were considered the most conservative of the different sects of Judaism at the time, and yet in their quote-unquote conservatism, what had they done? They said, look to us, we, we keep this law, we take this law seriously. And yet they began to, to expound it more and more. And when I say expound, really more interpret, as they said, well, in order to keep the Sabbath, let me show you the thousand 
little things you must do. And then you can say with pride in your heart, ah, I have kept the Sabbath. Not really digging into why God gave that law. They were so obsessed with all of these little rules that they had developed that they caught Christ and his disciples walking through a field one day. And as they were walking past the edge of a field, and in that time, God had commanded that all the farmers would leave some of their crop, especially if it was wheat that was around the edge of their field, so that those who were hungry, those that were poor, could have something to eat themselves. And so Christ and his disciples are passing by one of these fields as the edges are left for just such an occasion. And yet they're passing it on the Sabbath. And as they are passing and Christ is teaching and the Pharisees are there, they see that Christ's disciples take just a few grains from the heads of the wheat, crush it in their hands and eat it because they are hungry. And the Pharisee says, aha, Christ, why is it that your disciples do not follow the Sabbath? You see, the Pharisees had developed all of those rules and they saw before their eyes someone who was claiming to be a good rabbi, and yet his disciples were not following all those laws that they had explicated. To them, they were seeing a fourth commandment violation before their eyes, and they were there to call it out. What was Christ's response? Did he say, oh, I have come to do away with that law. We don't need to worry about the law anymore. No. He said, you missed the point. Do you not know that when David was hungry, when he was fleeing from Saul, that he was being hidden by the priests in the tabernacle? And that they took from the showbread and gave him that bread so that David and his men would not die of starvation. He's saying, why why is that okay? Was David found to be in sin? No, for for God, when he gave the law in the sixth commandment, had said far more than thou shalt not kill. He had said, thou shalt preserve life. Thou shalt seek the life of thyself and thy neighbor. And so the priests were right to take that showbread and to give it to David so that he and his men would not go hungry because they were seeking the life of David and his men. And then he turns to the Pharisees and he says, the Sabbath was, our man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. God did not give the Sabbath. And by extension, God did not give the rest of the law so that then he could create man so that it was all at the service of a written piece of legislation. No, he actually gave that law to man for man's good. He gave that law to him so that man could live in joy toward God. Yet the modern man, even in the modern church, think that the best response as they look to the Pharisees, for many will read that passage, many will read this passage, and they will see, well, the Pharisees dropped off into this ditch over here, 
And so they run very quickly to the ditch on the other side. And they say, well, we live in the new covenant. We live in a time when Christ has come. We know we don't have to keep all of that long and lengthy mosaic law that's found in so, so many pages from Exodus all the way to Deuteronomy. So we don't need to worry about that. They are right to look at the ceremonial law and to see so clearly how Christ fulfills all of those types and shadows. Yet they're very quick to throw out not only that, but the rest as well. And they say, really what the law now amounts to is love. And when they say that, they look to Christ in his Love thy neighbor as thyself, or love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, and think that Christ has taken every bit of the law and just given us a very simple sentence to follow. We don't need to worry about any of the rest, as long as you are loving, as long as you love God, as long as you love your neighbor. Well, you're fine. You followed the law. The problem is we live in a modern world where the word love means something very, very different than what Christ was saying back then. We can look at our culture today and we see exactly what our culture means by the word love. And it has nothing to do with what God actually said in Deuteronomy when he said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and strength. The modern world thinks that love is more akin to license and uncontrolled lust. The world thinks That self-indulgence is what love is, and that love is looking at a man who acts in his own self-indulgence, does whatever he pleases, and is accepting of that. That we are tolerant of those who maybe live life a little bit differently than we do. Don't worry, we live in a multicultural society. This is to be expected that there are lots of laws and lots of lawgivers and lots of people who live according to all of these laws. Don't criticize. Don't rebuke. And yet, they don't realize what they've done. As they look to all of these different people living their own lives, they say there really is no law except for the law of a single man in his own heart and what he desires to do. And yet, they've actually began to preach another law. A law that is, in their mind, binding on everyone's hearts. They may not see it, but you can't get away from it. Every society, every people has a law. And in the modern world, that law tends to be tolerance, acceptance. Thou shalt tolerate thy neighbor. No matter what sin he gets into, thou shalt tolerate it. Thou shalt not go to thy brother and hold him accountable. Bring him alongside and say, Brother, do you not know what the scriptures say? No, that's hate. They've redefined not only the word love, but it's converse. Hate. Yet that's not what the scriptures say. Christ in Matthew 18 was very clear that we are to hold each other accountable, that he said, when your brother is found in sin, he didn't say, oh, just tolerate it. No, he said, go to your brother. Go and tell him what it is that you're seeing in his life. And if he does not hear you, then take a brother. If he does not hear you, then take many brothers. And lastly, if he really does not hear you, bring it to the church. 
And Christ called this love. Do we not see how the modern world continues to redefine these words so it can use words that sound Christian and yet are not Christian at all? And so we see that this is what Christ commands. Christ was so emphatic about those who would relax the law that he says that they are least in the kingdom of heaven. And he's not speaking just to those who relax the law in their own hearts. He's speaking to those who teach others to do as well. James makes very clear that teachers are held to a higher strictness. And Paul in Romans sees that there is a greater sin, and not only in those who commit sodomy, but those who approve of those who commit such heinous actions. In essence, they are those that are teaching others that they ought to do these things, or they at least ought to accept that this is righteous. Yet Paul very clearly says, no, this is not freedom. Paul, in that same book, in Romans, will speak of what true freedom is, but he opens his book in the book of Romans as he shows what it looks like when man follows the desires of his own heart and not the desire that God has for him. That that is a world of darkness. That men trade in, it says, the natural affection that they should have had for women and look to each other that this God gave them over to, that that sin that they have begun to commit, that that sin became a punishment for itself. How often does God punish sin with more sin? For sin itself breeds death. Sin itself breeds destruction. God has merely to lift his hand and the punishment shall come. Sin itself is death. And so we see in our world around us today, do we not? that the laws of our land continue to go in a direction that does not look to what the scriptures say, which is a stone, is a foundation that does not change. Yet they would look to the philosophies of man. They would, as Paul would tell his dear beloved disciple Timothy, they would rather go to those philosophies that tickle the ears of so many. They would rather preach acceptance so that they can be accepted. And yet, no law is righteous unless it is founded on the only righteous law. Contrary to how our culture tells us that there are many laws for many societies and many cultures, we know there is one law. And that any society that chooses to base its laws on anything different will soon find chaos, will soon find death to be the result And so we pray for our land and for our people that they would look back to a philosophy, nay, a law that is constant and not that chaff that Psalm 1 speaks of that blows about in the wind or those philosophies that Paul speaks of in Philippians that would blow us back to and fro and take us nowhere. Yet as we speak of that law and 
how righteous and how good it is even for us as individuals, even for the church at large, even for society at large, even though it is a good thing, can we keep it? Can we keep it? Many in the church, many in the modern church would say yes. Many even all the way back in the Reformation in Rome said yes, can do that. Rome admitted that grace was needed, but they said, well, here though there is the law, Go and keep it, and if you don't make it all the way up those steps, as it were, well, there's purgatory for you. Maybe there's a hundred years, five hundred years in purgatory for you. That's not what Martin Luther found in the scriptures when he went searching. Luther was one who tried to keep that law very, very strictly. He observed every single amount of penance that he could in the Roman system. He went to confession so many times a day that his confessor told him not to come back. (laughs) He was so scrupulous that he realized what the law had been showing him the whole time. He realized he wasn't keeping it. He realized he couldn't keep it perfectly. He desired to keep it. He had a good heart, we might say. He wanted to be obedient to his God whom he loved. But when he read the book of Galatians, when he read the book of Romans, he did not see a Paul who was commanding him to go back to his confessor every single hour of the day. He saw a Paul who was saying, confess your sins every day to God directly. How can this be? Why is there not needed to be a priest in the Roman church to be a mediator? Because there is one high priest who already is the mediator. We confess our sins to God and the high priest, King Jesus, intercedes on our behalf. And so, We know that we have righteousness now, not because we keep the law perfectly. Indeed, we don't. If we were to look at our own lives, we know that the righteousness needed to get into heaven. We don't have it. What does Christ say here in our very last verse? Truly, I say unto you, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, the scribes, the ones who had explicated every law to the nth degree. Surely, if anyone was getting into the kingdom of heaven in that per- from the Jews' perspective, then it would be those scribes. And Christ said, no. You're going to have to exceed that. You're going to have to be more holy than that. And so many in the church, unfortunately, have taken that as a command to be even more scrupulous than the Pharisees, even more explicating of the law than they. Some have even convinced themselves that in such striving, they can become perfectly holy this side of eternity. Yet we read in Romans 7 that even Paul did not consider that something that he could attain. He says, that even he, as he is on the road taking the gospel of Christ to a people, a people that he says, does this mean that we do away with the law? By no means. He says, and yet what do I do? So often I do 
what I don't want to do. And I want to do the things that I don't actually do. There's a war, the spirit and the flesh warring back and forth. And yet Paul, when he writes, all the gospel writers, all of the writers of the New Testament, they write with such hope. They write of there being a guarantee of our salvation. They write of us being elected to salvation, of us being predestined to that election. How can they write these things if Paul is looking at his life and saying, yeah, this is a war, this is a struggle, I'm not keeping it, I'm not righteous. That is because they already have that righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees needed to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that is the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ, that is that he obeyed that self-same law, even in all of its ceremonies, down to the nth degree. He didn't break one iota of that law. He did not break any jot or tittle. The eternal Logos, the Son of God himself, the one who was the lawgiver on Mount Sinai. He came down to follow that law entirely. And now if we were to enter the kingdom of heaven, if we were to be there at the gates and the angel at the gate was to ask, why should I let you in? As if that's exactly how it looks. I'm not sure if there's actually an angel there with an actual gate. But if there were, And he was asking, why should I let you in? Don't you know that you need a righteousness that is more than all the scribes and the Pharisees? We can say, like the thief on the cross who died right next to Christ, that man on the cross said, I can come in. I do have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, but it wasn't I that was the one keeping that law. That was the man on the cross. He kept it. And the angel with a smile in this scenario would let us in. We can be sure that the gates of heaven are open to us, even us sinners, even us who know every day how vile our hearts are, that we are clothed in an unbreakable righteousness. And in that heaven, in that New heavens and new earth on that day when everything is made new, when we are citizens of a kingdom in which there are no more sinners, in which there are no more wicked men trying to stop the church from its growth, a world in which there is no more curse, there is no more death. What is it that we will be doing? Will the law have gone away then? No, we will keep it with utter delight and it will be nothing but our delight to follow that law. We will have no more of that flesh that is warring with our spirit that tempts us away. There will be no more striving. All shall be righteousness. Jonathan Edwards said in his famous sermon, heaven is a world of love. What did he mean by that? Did he mean it was the love that the modern world wants us to think of? No. He meant that law that can be so easily summarized in love of God and love of neighbor, that law is all that any will do in that kingdom. We practice it here on earth, now given the ability to begin to keep it more and more by the Spirit working within us, doing those good works that God prepared beforehand for us to do so that we 
are being put into that fire as we are striving. Yes, it hurts as sin is being driven out now. But we are doing that which we will do with all our delight at the end of all things. The law that we strive to keep now, we don't strive because we're trying to get into heaven. We strive because we know that's where we're going. For Christ has paved the way. And we long to practice that holy law that we know will be the law of all at the end of all things. Think of what a blessing that is. How blessed will that place be? And now God gives us by his spirit the means to begin to practice how we will live then, now. As some have said, the end of all things breaking in to the time now. And so we know that as we live in the shadows of the dawn, of that day that's already broken, for Christ is indeed seated on his throne now, we can march forward. We can love that law. We can be like the man that we see in Psalm 1. Yes, we fail, but we can begin now to take delight in that law because we can begin now to take delight in the lawgiver. So contrary to what this world would have us think, contrary to the preachings of men who say, let's put aside that law, embrace freedom. We say, no, let's embrace the freedom of the law. Let's embrace this thing that God has given to us out of grace. And let's do so because of our love for what he has done. He's already taken us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Thomas Watson said so famously, and I'll close with this, he said, when he was speaking on the Ten Commandments. He said, our love of our God should be such that when we read the Ten Commandments, even if there were no consequences, even if lying and cheating and stealing didn't have any ill effects on our lives, even if we got all that we cheated for, even though we got all we stolen and we got away scot-free and we had no shame, we had nothing bad happened to us because of these evil things we had done, our love of God should be so great that just because he said it, we'd want to do it. We would want to lay aside our sin and to follow his law. There he is speaking of a love that we're more familiar with, an affection. We are to have an affection for the Most High because of who he is and what he has done. And indeed, he has done so much for us, his people. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, let us love your holy law. Make our duty our delight, as the Puritan said. For Lord, so often it isn't our delight. So often we run away from doing it. But by your Spirit, Make us desire to keep it. Make it a delight for us. For Lord, Christ kept it for us. Let us do so out of a grateful heart to him for his work in his life, in his death, and in his glorious resurrection. It's in the name of Christ we pray all these things in the power of the Holy Spirit.